Welcome to the Bible in the News. This is Jonathan Bowen joining you. This week we are considering Canada in Bible prophecy, and our session is taken from a class given in Brantford this week. So this evening we're going to consider the subject of Canada in Bible prophecy, and it is a subject that is by all intents and purposes quite fascinating in the sense that um, it is, of course, Canada's 150th birthday this year. So uh, it's one that certainly is relevant to uh, what is going on around us when we consider this is the nation in which most of us, I would say, live. I think pretty well all of us. Um, I'm not actually a citizen of Canada. I'm a citizen of another country. And, but I've lived here for at least 35 years. And, um, and certainly it is a place that we are thankful to be in the sense of the freedoms that it, it, it gives to us. Freedoms such as being able to meet together this evening and consider the subject together. Now, when we look at what is before us and we see the different things that the Bible has to say, it's important that we consider the, the events that are sort of laid out for us in the Bible and what is there for us in, in the sense of what it says. Because the Bible gives us a real clear picture of uh, what is going to happen in the future. It's the Apostle Peter who writes in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19 that we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto we're told that we do well, that we take heed, as unto a light that shines in a dark place, until that day dawn and that day star rise in our hearts. Now, we live in, in many senses of the word in a dark place, as the word of God has been somewhat removed in most of Western society, but we still have the word of prophecy that is there for us to assist us in understanding what is going on in the world around us. And it's a word that is there to give us guidance, especially when we consider um, what the prophet Amos has to say in chapter 3 and verse 7, where we read, Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. And he goes on to say, The lion hath roared, who will not fear? The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? prophesy sorry. So there we have a fact that God reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And he tells them events that are going to happen before they actually take place. And this, of course, is made very clear for us in the prophet um, Isaiah, where he tells us, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, he says, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And that's from Isaiah 46, in verses 9 to 10. So God says that he's going to tell us the end from the beginning. So before things take place, he's going to actually give us information about that. And, of course, he's also going to bring about empires and remove empires, bring kings onto the scene, remove kings from the scene... As you read in Daniel chapter 4 in verse 17, where Daniel recounts to the king that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomsoever he will, and sets up over it the basest of men. So whatever kingdom or dominion we live in, uh, it's the Most High that rules over it, and he sets over it whosoever he wills, and sets up over it the basest of men. So when we look at Canada, and we look at the government that we're under, and sometimes we like to complain about, you know, different things that go on. We must understand that um, it is God who sets up the rulers, and uh, they're there for a purpose. We might not always know it. We might not always see it. But quite often it's after the fact that these things become clear to us. Um, so when we look at God and we look at the nations, he puts a challenge out there to the nations. He says to us, continuing on in Isaiah... He says in chapter 43 and verse 9, Let the nations be gathered together. Let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring forth their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is truth. So that's God's challenge to the world around. He says, bring forth your witnesses. You tell me the things that are going to take place. And of course, the nations cannot do that. We get people who make a wild stab at it such as Nostradamus and a few others who have some vague predictions about the future that you could take just about any way. But God's promises are very clear and laid out very, very succinctly. And one of those promises is, of course, about the return of the Jews to the land. If you just turn up Isaiah chapter 11. This figures heavily 
in, in the prophecies all the way through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and into the minor prophets as well. In chapter 11 of Isaiah, he makes this statement. He says, it shall come to pass in verse 11 that the Lord shall set his hand a second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar and Hamath, from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the world. So God has clearly stated the things that he's about to do regarding the nation of Israel specifically. But again, as he said, I'm going to tell you former things. It's not only the fact that Israel would return to the land, but he also tells us how exactly this is going to take place. And in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 14, he says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So he talks about this partial restoration of the Jews back to the land, and that he's going to be the one who does this. He's going to bring the Jews back to the land of Zion, not all at once, but one of a city and two of a family. A gradual process that would take place over a period of time. Now what's equally as fascinating is he also tells us how this is going to take place and who is going to be involved in this regathering of the nations. The Gentiles, basically, are going to be involved in this. And we read in the 60th chapter of Isaiah, in verse 9, he tells us there who it is. He says, surely it's the isles that will wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish first, to bring thy sons from far, their silver, their gold with them, unto the name of the Lord thy God, and to the Holy One of Israel, because he hath glorified thee. And he tells us that it will be the sons of strangers that shall build thy walls, and their kings shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy upon thee. So here it is that it's going to be Gentile nations, these ships of Tarshish, whoever they may be, who are going to be involved in bringing Israel, the sons from afar, with their silver and gold, and it's the sons of strangers, the Goyim, the Gentiles, who are going to help build up this new nation of Israel and kings are going to minister unto Israel. Now that's pretty significant, really. It's not just the fact that Jews would return to the land, um, but rather, uh, on top of that, this nation of Tarshish is going to be involved in this. Now, this involves Canada, um, but before we can get into Canada, we really need to just spend a couple of minutes and talk about who this nation of Tarshish is. Who is the biblical Tarshish that we read about in Isaiah chapter 60. Now, the nice thing about the scriptures is, of course, that they give us lots of information. And um, we have, throughout the prophets, mention made of this nation elsewhere as well. So we have Ezekiel chapter 37, which is the, the mercantile nations all described for us. And they talk about there the ones that, that trade with the nation, the ancient Phoenician nation of Tyre. And it talks about this nation of Tarshish, which is a merchant that deals with them by reason of the multitude of all kinds of riches, with silver, iron, tin, and lead, they traded in my fares, which of course is their, their wares. So these are the things that the Tarshish nations bring to the table. They are silver, iron, tin, and lead, and uh, that's what they're going to bring. And so when we consider this nation, they are called a merchant, and the word there means basically a sakar, which means to go around, to travel about uh, a country specifically, for the purpose and the sake of traffic or trade. So we would call them today the traveling salesperson. And that's what the, the merchants of Tarshish would be. And uh, here is a depiction of some of these uh, Phoenician uh, mariners as they go about doing exactly this, trading all over the world. We have more information, though, given to us than just this. We're told in the second of Chronicles, chapter 9 and verse 21, that it's going to be the king's ships that went to Tarshish. So this is talking about King Solomon. With the servants of Hiram, every three years uh, once came the ships of Tarshish, bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. And so there were these Phoenicians, basically, who would circumnavigate Africa, and they would bring all these different items back with them, and it would take about a three-year journey to do this. So this is in the record of Chronicles. So we look at Tarshish, it's a nation that trades in tin and lead and all these other things, 
but also silver, ivory, gold, apes, and peacocks. So quite a bit of information in the Bible, so to speak. Um, also in Ezekiel chapter 27, we won't read this whole passage, but just pick out the, the, the mariner side of this, that they are merchants in the market. Uh, they travel through the seas. They have rowers that row on the great waves. And they have mariners and pilots and caulkers and exchangers. Uh, there are men of war with them. So they are a merchant, but also a, a warlike people that travel in the midst of the seas. They have oars and, and, uh, and they have um, mariners, basically, that pilot their, their ships throughout the great sea. So this is the, the depiction that's given in Ezekiel of whoever this, this mercantile people of Tarshish is. And one other little clue for us is, of course, in Jonah chapter 1, in uh, verse 3, we're told there that when Jonah fled to Tarshish, he went down, of course, to the, uh, the port city of Joppa, which is on the, uh, the coast of Israel to the west, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he, he went to the west, basically, to find this, this country of Tarshish. So when we put together all those different facts, so to speak, of what this nation is, we have this summary that's been given to us. It's a Gentile nation located in the Isles of the Gentiles, who traded with Tyre, a Phoenician nation in origin. It's a merchant power, also military. It trades in things like iron and, and tin and lead, silver, gold, ivory, apes and peacocks. It's a maritime power, and it's to the west of Israel. And it really is an entirely other subject, but just to kind of pick up on what a couple of historians tell us, this is Herodotus, who wrote around uh, 100 years or so after Ezekiel. He says, basically, that there is this, this island that is to the west, which is called the Cassiterites, or the Tin Island. So he identified some nation way out to the west of, of the Mediterranean, um, which had this place called the Cassiterite, or the Tin Islands. And another historian, but also a, a well-known man, Julius Caesar, an emperor, in his book, The Gallic Wars, tells us basically that he was familiar with this Cassiterite or Tin Island people, and he associates it with the Britons uh, in his book called The Gallic Wars. And uh, one other one, a little bit more recent, uh, only a few hundred years ago, 1651, a man named Samuel Bocart, who wrote a geography, and he relates that Britain is the name given to this island by the Phoenicians. They were trafficked hither uh, for tin, uh, calling it Baratanak, or the Land of Tin, and uh, which basically became Britannia in years later on. So all of these historians and this biblical uh, narrative kind of point towards Britain as being this Tarshish nation. But remember, the reason we're interested in Tarshish is because it tells us in the Bible, in Isaiah 60, that it's the ships of Tarshish that would be involved in bringing the sons of Israel from afar back to the land. So looking at these, these passages of Isaiah 60, and the ones we've looked at in, in Chronicles and Kings and Ezekiel and so on, and reading what the historians had to say, a man named John Thomas, who wrote a book called Elpis Israel back in 1848, um, basically reflecting on this, said, I know not whether the men who at present contrived the foreign policy of Britain entertain the idea of assuming sovereignty of the Holy Land and of promoting its colonization by the Jews. He says, I don't know if this is on their books. This is something that they've been thinking about. But he says, it really doesn't matter. Their present intentions, however, have no importance one way or the other because they will be compelled by events soon to happen to do what under existing circumstances heaven and earth combined could not move them to attempt. So he looked at these prophecies and these, these scriptures basically identifying this Tarshish nation, identified it as Britain, and said, well, if that's what the Bible said, then Britain has to be involved in bringing the Jews back to the land. And so he goes on to say that the finger of God has indicated a course to be pursued by Britain, which cannot be evaded, and which her counselors will not only be willing, but eager to adopt when the crisis comes upon them. The decree has long since gone forth, which calls upon the Lion of Tarshish to protect the Jews. Upwards of a thousand years before the British were a nation, the prophet addressed them in a power, as a power which at even time should interest themselves on behalf of, uh, of Israel. So here was the idea, basically, that Britain was to be involved in the bringing of the Jews back to the land. 
But just as a, a quick aside, there was a couple of other nations that were mentioned, Sheba and Dedan, uh, in Ezekiel chapter, chapter 38 and verse 13 that we're going to look at shortly. And um, in this passage, it tells us that Sheba, Dedan, along with these merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions, are going to be part of a confederacy at the time of the end, which is going to protest against the invasion of Russia, the land. And they're going to say, have you come to Russia and, and to the forces associated with it? Have you gathered your company to take a prey, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, and to take a great spoil? Now, what's interesting about Sheba and Dedan, if we look at them again, biblically, they are identified for us. Uh, it's Genesis chapter 25 that identify both Sheba and Dedan as being descendants of Abraham by his wife Keturah, who basically, we are told later on, would inhabit the area of Saudi Arabia. In fact, we're told in uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 21 and verse 13 that it's in Arabia that they would lodge these traveling companies of the Dedan, or uh, the Danim, or the Dedanites, basically. Um, this is where they would be located. So Dedan is located in the area of Arabia. And uh, elsewhere, of course, we read in Ezekiel chapter 27, uh, the same chapter dealing with merchants, that Dedan uh, would be a merchant in, in clothes for chariots. Arabia is, is identified there. The merchants of Sheba are there trading in spices and all precious stones of gold. And, of course, we know that the queen of Sheba came to visit the king Solomon, and she brought with her many precious spices. And it's just a historical fact at this point that in Sheba, uh, or in Yemen, the ancient ruins of Sheba have been located ancient irrigation dams for spice production, and different temples. This is the Temple of the Moon that date back to that time. So just kind of pulling those pieces together in the area of the Middle East, this is just an ancient map uh, from the Turkish Empire times, we're basically given the idea that in Arabia would be both the nations of Sheba and Dedan, and these, of course, would be involved with these merchants of Tarshish. So we're talking about a power in the south that part of which the Tarshish power would be involved in bringing the Jews back to the land, and of course other areas of it would be involved in this latter-day protest against the great king of the north. So you're probably wondering at this point in time, well, what's all this got to do with Canada? And of course um, we have uh, this great nation that we live in. Uh, if you know anything of the history of it, it wasn't always part of the British Empire. Um, long ago, of course, it was inhabited by um, the, the different tribes uh, of the, uh, the uh, first Americans, as they would call them. But then the French came along, and it was King Louis XIV of France, basically, who would proclaim Canada as a province of the Kingdom of France in 1663. Now, this is the same guy, incidentally, who was the one who persecuted the Huguenots, who revoked the Edict of Nantes and, and brought great um, uh, tribulation on, on Protestant Huguenots in Europe. And it was under his laws that only Roman Catholics would be allowed to inhabit the colony, uh, the French colony in what would be today Quebec. And in fact, the first records of any Jews living in Canada are members of the British Army from the French-Indian War um, around basically the 1750s. And it was in 1759 that one of the officers, a guy named Samuel Jacobs, is recorded as the first Jewish resident of Quebec, and consequently he would have been the first uh, Canadian Jew. So um, before Britain took over, it was ruled by France, and at that point in time there wasn't exactly a happy um, connection between the Jewish people and uh, the people of the book. Um, but of course uh, those would change, and today when we look at Canada... Um, contrary to Louis' designs, Canada boasts a population of Jewish people of around 310,000, in, in 2010 that is, the bulk of which live exactly in this province in um, Ontario. So it's about 174,000 Jews live in the area of Ontario. But what has all this, again, got to do with prophecy? That's kind of a little bit on Canada's background. It began as a French... Uh, sort of colony and, and then was taken over by the British. But what we find about is we go back to Ezekiel and to that chapter 38 and verse 13, that when we read about Sheba and Dedan, which is the area of Arabia, 
um, with these merchants of Tarshish, which if we've identified as Breton, there are these young lions which are seen with them, which are going to make this protest, protest in, the, in the latter days against this Gogian host that's going to come down that we'll look at later on. When you look at this idea of a young lion, and you say, well, what exactly does that mean? Well, if you look at a young lion, the word actually in Strong's is uh, 3715. It's the word kafir. And it has the concept, basically, Gesenius tells us, of a young lion who's already weaned and has begun to go out and hunt by himself. So that's what the meaning of the word young lion is. And it comes up in Ezekiel um, chapter 39, um, verses 2 to 3, sorry, chapter 19, verses 2 to 3. Uh, this is where basically it talks about uh, what is thy mother, a lioness, she lay down among lions, she nourished her whelps among young lions, she brought up one of her whelps, it became a young lion and it learned to catch the prey, it devoured men. Now the context is a little bit different as to what it's talking about, but the use of the word is what we're really looking at here, is that this young lion is one that actually would go out and it would catch prey all by itself. It's the same word used incidentally in Judges of uh, Samuel when he went, Samson, sorry, when he went out and caught a young lion, and also in Psalm 17, verse 19. So this is a young lion who has left the lair, so to speak, left the den, and he's gone out independently and now hunts by himself. So he's no longer under his mother's care. He's not a pup anymore or a little, little cub that's going to need its mother to help prepare, provide for it or hunt for it even. It's independent, and it's gone out all by its lonesome. Now, it's interesting when you consider Britain as sort of the Tarshish power that has associated with it these young lions. They are nations, basically, that are now independent of it, using the, the, the use of this word here. And so this is a Canadian postage stamp from 1898, and it tells us there, we hold a vaster empire than has been. And of course, it used to be the saying that the sun never sets on the British Empire because as it was setting on the empire in Britain, it was rising on it in Australia or Canada or into Asia, Africa, India, um, all across these areas, the British Empire was involved. And so it was basically this massive empire that spread right the way around the world. However, the use of the word kafir um, would tell us that it would remain that way. It would become uh, an association of independent nations that are still tied together, but that basically are separated by this, this sort of spirit of independence. And so that's what we read about, not just in Ezekiel, but also, incidentally, if you just come to Luke. If you come over to Luke chapter 21, there's a little passage here that the Lord talks about Israel in the latter days. And he talks about this, this parable of the fig tree. But he doesn't just talk about the fig tree. He says there's other trees to consider as well. So Luke 21, verse 29, he says, Behold, uh, a fig tree and all the trees. He says, When they now shoot forth, you see and know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. So likewise ye, when you see these things come to pass, know ye that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand. And of course, we usually look at this passage in reference to Israel, the fig tree. When it shoots nigh once again, then the kingdom of God would be nigh at hand. But notice there that he doesn't just talk about the fig tree. There is also all the trees. There are other nations that would be independent, that would shoot forth. And it's interesting, we have at home this, this great long wall chart. It's about 16 uh, panels long, and you can just kind of see it here. And this is giving you an idea of the nations, basically, as they, as they, are, they are likened here. And you can see that like in the, in the beginning of time here, going back to the time of Queen Victoria, there were some nations, but then all of a sudden you have this explosion of many nations that come out of the few of the, the major, mostly European nations at the time and their different empires, uh, following largely the Napoleonic Revolution. Well, just to kind of expand on this, if we look at the top here, we see there's Queen Victoria. We notice at the very top that the, uh, the French Revolution, America actually broke out before the French Revolution, um, which is an interesting story in itself that we looked at a few weeks ago when, when uh, Brother John spoke to us about that. 
But we also have here other nations that would have their independence, New Zealand, Canada, and uh, um, Australia, South Africa, Ireland, and later on India. And so all these nations would basically gain their independence over a period of time from this mother lion, so to speak, of uh, this great Tarshish power. And hence Canada's birthday that's being celebrated this year. Uh, it's 150 years from 1867 to 2017. So it gained its independence 150 years ago from the British crown uh, as an independent nation. It's been a process over a period of time, just like a young lion doesn't just leave the nest or the, the den all at once. It's a process that takes place. Um, and that has been the way with Canada. In fact, um, we were in uh, Charlottetown in Prince Edward Island, um, the, uh, the place basically of confederation, and this is the building where it all took place a few years back. And um, this is where the founding fathers of Canada uh, came together and, and they had this, this, this uh, act of union, um, the British North America Act and its follow-ons from there, where they basically had their, uh, their first constitution. And you can go there today and there's a great big painting on the wall and you can see them celebrating their independence at this great gala ball. And you'll notice there, you probably make out John A. MacDonald um, that features on some of our, our money and whatnot. And this is the place where Canada achieved its, if you want to call it, young lion status. Uh, this is the room that is seen in many of the paintings. And uh, we were there, it was a fairly long while ago, as you can tell um, by the age of my children there. But this is where this whole sort of scenario went down and where Canada basically obtained its independence. And uh, it's interesting that many of the nations, basically, of the empire gained their independence in around this time and, and basically leading on from there. There's a map of the, uh, the, the Commonwealth, so to speak. And you can see at one point in time, you even got um, America involved in this as well. And so it was in uh, 1776 that the Americans basically gained their independence, followed by Canada in 1867. Um, and there's sometimes a bit of a debate as to who went first in the rest of these. But um, New Zealand in 1907, or sorry, Australia in 1901, New Zealand 1907, South Africa 1910, Egypt was another uh, area that they, they relinquished in 1922, and India in uh, 1947. So a lot of these nations were involved in the Commonwealth and broke free at different points in time. And of course, there's many others, Ireland and others, basically, a lot of the, the Caribbean nations that, that have uh, separated since Indonesia and some of those nations in that area as well. So interestingly, though, Britain, uh, as sort of the the mother lion um, in Canada have maintained this relationship and, and the identity of, of Britain and Australia and New Zealand and others as the young lion is, is probably made very clear when you go to Trafalgar Square and there's Lord Nelson who fought against the French and um, you have Canada's young lions basically depicted in, uh, in the, um, the square uh, the great big lion it's, itself there, a World War II medal with the lion going out to fight, um, the lion on the heraldic shield of Canada, um, all these things that kind of tie it together with the symbology that's there for us in Ezekiel and the picture that's given to us uh, throughout the story of the Bible. It's interesting though, World War I is probably one of the places where it's the most commonly seen, um, when the British put out that, that famous poster of the Empire Needs Men. And uh, the, uh, answering the call, we've got Australia, Canada, India, New Zealand, helped by the young lions, the old lion defends his foes in list now. Which is very interesting because, you know, in completely unaware of what the Bible has to say in Ezekiel chapter 38, they've drawn on this imagery and no doubt the angels were at work in helping us uh, in making these identifications by using this imagery, as, as often nations do, and identifying with it. But it doesn't stop there, of course. This is Canada's ensign, uh, the original flag of Canada, um, before 1960s. And notice, of course, that it has the Union Jack on it. So obviously uh, a connection to uh, Britain. 
And here is another poster or two from World War I. And you can see Canada out front uh, marching here along with his compatriots. And you can see the Indians and Africans back there. And other nations basically that are joining in the Anzacs, the New Zealanders and the Australians as they go together to defend the Commonwealth. And the poster to the side linking basically Great Britain with New Zealand, Australia, Canada, Newfoundland, South Africa, um, all of them tied together because, of course, originally Newfoundland was separate from Canada until the 1940s. So the call was for young men to go out and join this great war effort against Germany. But it wasn't just young men. There was also young women as well. And you can see here the Canadian Red Cross Society uh, recruiting its um, young women to go out and work as nurses in this time of great conflict. So interesting to see, basically, how this whole situation rolled out. But another subject, um, but one that sort of while we're just considering this is worthwhile thinking about, is that when this great call to join the empire went out, um, the Military Service Act from Canada, and this is a poster from Canada, required every unmarried man of military age uh, not exempted or exempted under the act could choose one of two courses. Either he was to enlist at once or he could attest under the, the group system. Um, and of course, if he didn't enlist, then he was deemed to have enlisted. If he didn't go for exemption, then he was basically said to have been enlisted. So it's interesting that, you know, the deadline is tomorrow, uh, Thursday, March the 2nd, that you have to have your exemption in by. And if you didn't attest it, then you were automatically enrolled in the armed forces. And that's just something to think about um, when we consider the day and age in which we live. Um, should there be a war, it's not a question of sitting it out. You had to make a choice. Either you're in the army... Or you have to go to court and attest your conscientious objector status. There was no sort of sitting on the fence and waiting in between. So it's well worth thinking about where we are in our own lives. Um, should anything happen again, no doubt a similar situation would be faced. Although with feminism today, it wouldn't just be the young men fighting on the front lines. It would be the young women as well. And the ages basically began at sort of that 18 to 40 um, but, of course, as the war rolled on, the ages became older and older. So this is uh, just an aside, another subject altogether. Um, but interesting that Canada actually played a large role in World War I. And sometimes there's a little bit of history that has passed by. Here's another recruiting poster, a Canadian recruiting poster. Um, but you'll notice that it's not written in English. It's actually written in Hebrew because this is a recruitment poster for the Canadian Jewish Legion. And uh, they went and they, they trained in Canada in a place called Fort Edward in Windsor, Nova Scotia. And um, this whole battalion, or three or four battalions, I think it was, would all pull together, um, or three or four of these groups would pull together into this Jewish Legion. And um, you might think that's, well, it's kind of, you know, this small little group of Jews uh, come to Canada to do some training. Um, what's the significance in that? Well, here they are. Uh, you can see the fort in the background up on the hill there from the, the postcard that we just looked at. And here are the Jewish soldiers. And um, one of them, incidentally, wrote a letter. Uh, this is him there. His name is David Green. He says, In Windsor, one of the great dreams of my life to serve as a Jewish soldier, a soldier in a Jewish unit to fight for the liberation of the land of Israel as we always called Palestine, uh, became a reality. I will never forget Windsor, where I received my first training as a soldier and where I became a corporal. Now, you might not recognize David Green, but his uh, name later on in life was David Ben-Gurion. He was the first prime minister of Israel who came to Canada and trained with a whole bunch of other Jews in this Jewish legion and then went to the land of Israel, as they called it, Palestine, as, as the other nations called it, to fight for liberation of this land. So Canada was very much involved in this whole situation. But we want to just switch gears for a moment and come back to the prophecies regarding what's to happen in the latter days. Because that's what God had told us he would do, tell us the end from the beginning. So come if you would to uh, uh, Daniel, sorry, chapter 11. 
In Daniel chapter 11 and Ezekiel chapter 38 are the two prophecies we're going to look at tonight. Um, Spend a little bit of time in each. And um, it's really a story about a king of the north and the king of the south that we read about in Daniel chapter 11 and at verse 40. Now this isn't the American Civil War where we have north and south. This is north and south in relation to the land of Israel. And so we read in Daniel chapter 11 verse 40. At the time of the end shall the king of the south push at somebody called him. And uh, that him is the Turkish empire which was resident in the land at the time uh, of the end basically that, that the writer is here talking about. So Daniel basically sees the targeting by this group called the king of the south against this group uh, that is the him and later on we talk about the king of the north. Now if we just consider basically the time period of the time of the end there was this great Turkish empire that covered the whole area. And so here we have the Middle East, both Arabia, uh, right the way up into the land of what we call Israel today, across Egypt and into uh, Anatolia or Turkey as it's called today, and all of Greece, across um, North Africa, the area of Libya. All of this was controlled by the Turkish Empire, but there would come a time when it changes, because remember we read about Sheba and Dedan, the area of Arabia, and of course there would be this, this southern power, Um, who would be contesting against this invasion that would take place in Ezekiel chapter 38. Well, Revelation also writes about this in chapter 16 and verse 12, where we're told about this this time of the end, and there's going to be a sixth angel that pours out a vial upon the great river Euphrates, which we don't have time to discuss tonight, but that is the Turkish Empire, and it tells us that those waters would be dried up, so that there would be a preparation for this this way of the kings of the sun's rising. Uh, So this is the the kings of the sun's rising would need that the Turkish power moved out of the area in order to bring about future events. Now what's interesting is, of course, Canada was heavily involved in the time period when this all took place, which was, of course, uh, the First World War. Canada would have a large role in it. Here is a Canadian soldier wearing his kilt at all, and his little uh, notable hat. And um, they were, of course, fighting in Europe, in, in many of the, uh, the great battles of Europe, um, the Somme and, and, uh, and other ones, Vimy Ridge. Uh, the Canadians were served with sort of distinguished valor, I guess you could say, and uh, were able to go up against the, the German en- enemy, where many others had failed. So Canada prides itself in its, in its heritage in the First World War. The problem was, though, the whole war got bogged down in these trenches that they fought in. And so a young man who uh, was involved in the the war office in Britain, planning basically what would happen, the first Lord of the Admiralty, a man named Winston Churchill, came up with this idea of uh, the Gallipoli campaign, which they would open up another front against um, the Turks. And, of course, it was put into the hands of uh, a man named Kitchener, who, from many accounts, blew the whole campaign. Um, But really, you can't blame Kitchener or Churchill for the failure in the area of Gallipoli, which was Turkey, um, because it wasn't in God's plan. It was a disaster. Some 30,000 soldiers would die in this campaign. But God had other plans. They needed to open a second front, yes, but if they took Turkey right in the area of Turkey, it still left Palestine, quote-unquote, as an occupied land. And so it was that they had to look for another way. So we have men like Lawrence of Arabia, of great fame, um, who would unite the Arabs and basically push up from the south, coming up from from Mecca and Medina and the Red Sea area, and would push the Ottoman Turks up north, basically, to Damascus. And, of course, uh, Allenby and others would join in with them. Canada and its troops were largely involved, though, in the Western Front um, and up in Russia, They kind of put them in areas where they thought they'd be more used to it. So the Aussies and the New Zealanders ended up in the baking heat of the the Sinai and uh, and of Egypt and the Indian troops with them as well. Mostly Canada was involved in fighting in in actually um, in uh, Russia and on the Western Front. But a group of Canucks um, were railroad builders because, of course, there are lots of railroads all across Canada So they became involved in the light rail contingent that went to the Middle East 
to help to build railroads all through the area that would basically um, attribute to the war effort there so they could move machinery um, much quicker into the area um, that was needed. So Allenby um, basically would, would conscript these men to go work with them or to, to bring them along in this campaign in the area of the Middle East. So mostly it would have been the New Zealanders, the Anzacs, and the Indians under British command, but Canada was also involved in this as well. And of course we know the story that it would be in 1917 as they were making a move towards Jerusalem um, that, uh, that um, General Allenby would be moving up that area. But we have, of course, Balfour and the famous Balfour Declaration, um, 1917, so, so over 100 uh, plus years ago. And um, they would make this, this homeland for the Jewish people in Palestine. And it was the, the result of the effort of all these nations that were involved with the merchants of Tarshish and all the young lions thereof that this would take place. And Allenby, of course, would march into Jerusalem about a month later in December 1917, uh, fulfilling basically what had been written about in Revelation 16, the drying up of the river Euphrates. And it would change the face of the Middle East. That Ottoman Empire would see the Brits first move into the area of Egypt and push the Ottomans out of there, then into the area of Sinai um, in uh, the, uh, the, the campaigns of Allenby and others, they came up from the Mesopotamia, literally drying up the river Euphrates, up the Euphrates River and the Tigris. They got kind of bogged down there as well, so they had to then come up from the south, and they came up basically through the area of Palestine. They took out uh, Medina, Mecca, the, the Arabian Peninsula, what we know as Jordan today, and eventually all the areas to the north was overrun um, by the, the joint Allied powers. So between 1915 and 1919, Britain conquered all this area of the Middle East, pushing the Turks, the Euphrates power, out of the area, and of course creating um, in its wake, um, in a few years, many more independent nations. Very interesting that, you know, we, we talked about Canada and the nations that were involved up in the, in the top there, the independence that would come from that, but it would be also paralleled down in the Middle East where you had all these independent nations that would come out of the Ottoman Empire, um, the different ones that basically would split out after this fact as well. So remember the Lord's words, consider the fig tree and all the trees. So out of this, following the British and the French dividing the Middle East up amongst themselves, you would have Egypt would achieve its independence in 1922, and then we would have basically following that Iraq in 1932, Syria 1936, Lebanon 1943, Jordan 1946, and then of course most significantly following this would be Israel in 1948. So involved in all of this is basically the hand of God and the angels in using nations like Canada and uh, Britain and Australia and New Zealand in clearing the Middle East of this Ottoman Turk power and then clearing out of the Middle East, so to speak, and allowing basically these nations to become independent. And again, Canada had a very heavy role in this as well. The United Nations Special Committee on Palestine um, was basically heavily influenced by the Canadians. In fact, there's a book out um, on this whole story that I'm just in the process of reading right now. But Canada was represented uh, on the, at the United Nations uh, Special Committee on Palestine by two men, a man named Ivan Rand and another one named Leon, or Leon uh, Mayrand as an alternate. Um, and it's interesting when you read the history because at first, Ben-Gurion and, and the other people like, um, uh, what was his name, Abba Eben, were very skeptical about these Canadians um, and their stand on what would be uh, the land of Palestine and what was going to happen to it. But of course, typical to Canadian nature, um, they joined the commission, and you can see them there as they travel to the Middle East, boarding the plane and heading over there. Um, and when they saw the conditions of the refugees, both in Europe and in the land of, of quote-unquote, Palestine at the time, they witnessed the Haganah ship, Exodus, um, come in and so on and so forth, that basically their hearts went out to them, as we see even today, amongst um, the, the Canadians when it comes to Syria and other nations, and they basically reasoned that it would be anything but barbaric um, not to, just one second, not to involve 
um, Israel or the Jews in, in having a piece of Palestine and having it partitioned so that they could be involved in it. And so it was that the, the plan for, for partition uh, went to the United Nations in 1947. 33 nations voted in favor. Canada was one of them, actually against the wishes of Great Britain, um, who wanted all the colonies to abstain. And Canada de uh, granted de facto recognition of Israel in 1948 in December, and Israel's first consul general was appointed in 1948. And uh, it's interesting, basically, that, you know, Canada was, the first nation, of course, was America, but Canada was pretty close uh, in coming in behind and being involved in these different things. And so it was when the nation was proclaimed in 1948, when the Jewish state was born, that Canada had had a, a great hand in this in many different ways. And of course, the man who read out the proclamation, who had fought against the Ottoman Turks, had had his training in Nova Scotia, um, in, a, in the first of the Jewish legions trained on Canadian soil. So just interesting when we consider how these things take place, and Canada has continued to develop. This was the ensign in 1965, but she has kept on her, her young lion development, moving away from Britain, so to speak. 1965, the ensign was changed to the, the maple leaf that we know today. But interestingly enough, um, the Canadian uh, connection to Britain is very alive and well. You can see the British insignia on the British Columbia flag. It's there with the Alberta flag. Uh, Saskatchewan has the lion. Uh, Manitoba, the ensign as well, as well as Ontario, the province we live in, does. And then, of course, Prince Edward Island, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia all carry uh, the British lion on them as well um, is, as part of their insignia. And so it was things would move ahead. Uh, 1982, which was actually the year that we, the year after we moved to Canada, um, that basically you would have the uh, the arrival of the Queen in Canada, who would sign um, the um, the uh, the papers basically for Canada to achieve basically its independence completely from Britain, in that they didn't have to have laws now or changes to the Constitution, I should say, go back to Britain for royal assent. So when the Queen came and, and signed these things over, that was the end of the monarch's um, power, so to speak, over the Canadian government to change its own constitution. It had been independent since 1867, but with the signing of this document, it now gained a new level of independence, and of course Canada has sort of moved on from there has retained, though, of course, if you look on the back of any of your coins, the Queen as its head of state. Now, Canada has had ups and downs when it comes to the nation of Israel. Um, probably one of its greatest ups was under this man, Stephen Harper, who was probably the best friend of Israel Canada has produced as far as world leaders go. Um, and when he went to Israel, as we've talked about in, in different classes, he was, he was certainly... Uh, greeted there with great um, uh, sort of fervor, and, and his comments were very, very close to Israel. Of course, no politician lasts forever. The Most High does rule in the kingdoms of men and brings about other people. So now we have a new prime minister, this man, uh, Trudeau, who is the son of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who signed the, um, the agreement with the Queen. He's the new kid in town. And um, only time will tell how things go with Justin Trudeau. But what's interesting is what the news has been reporting about his policies regarding Israel. Um, when he came on board, he had a, uh, um, a foreign minister named Stefan Dion. Um, however, the opposition party, the NDP, um, has been most upset with Trudeau. Um, this is an article written in sort of um, uh, criticism of Trudeau, saying that basically Trudeau has continued Harper's policies on Israel. And this was December of 2016. He says, the government's policy towards Israel and Palestine, as articulated by the Governor General's uh, visit, just happens to be identical with the old government's policy. Canada may be back in the Middle East, uh, but it's Stephen Harper's Canada that is back, says this article in the Globe and Mail. So the NDP not very happy with the policies that, that Trudeau has put in place so far. Interestingly, too, that there have been calls 
for Canada to end its double standard that uh, basically has been put in place regarding Israeli settlements calling them illegal. And this writer, this is just uh, January of 2017, the 31st, just a month ago, he says, the time has come for Canada to change our position to align with Canadian basic values, uh, equally important with international law. And he goes through this great legal argument, but basically says that Canada cannot deny the idea of Jews living in the area of the West Bank and around Jerusalem based on the fact that um, this land was taken as a result of Arab aggression and Canada has recognized other areas throughout the world under the same uh, pretense. So basically, it's, it's a hypocrite, is what the writer says, and it's time for Canada to, to own up to this. Um, very recently, um, Trudeau shuffled his, uh, his cabinet, and Stéphane Dion, who was a French uh, minister, was basically tossed out as being foreign minister, yeah, because he ruffled the feathers of many in Israel. And he was replaced with this woman, Christia uh, Freeland, who basically um, is now the new foreign minister. And it was about three days before he was supposed to go to Israel for a visit. And uh, we're told that during his tenure, Dion made numerous statements that were ill-received in Israel, such as that Canada would strive for a more balanced policy regarding the Middle East, including uh, active outreach in the Arab world. Israel is a friend and it is an ally, but for us, it is uh, to be effective ally, we need also to strengthen our relationship with our legitimate partners in the region, is what he had said. Kind of similar to Obama's stand when he came to power. Um, and after that, and some of the other things that he had to say about Israel, uh, Stefan Dion was removed from the cabinet and this other lady was put in place. So it remains to be seen what Canada will do with regards to Israel, um, save and accept that we already know the end game. And that is given to us in Daniel chapter 11 and in Ezekiel. We read about at the time of the end, the king of the south would push at him, right? This is that moving of the, the, the Turkish power. But that would invoke a response from somebody called the king of the north, who would come against him, uh, that's Turkey again, like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships, but he wouldn't stop there. He would enter over, enter in and, and pass over, and he would overflow um, into other countries. And so what we find is that these other countries, as he keeps going, would include something called the glorious land, which of course is the land of Israel, and many countries would be overthrown, and it goes on to say that there would be this group that would escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the children of Ammon. And, of course, we know those nations to be basically the geographical area of what is today uh, the nation of Jordan. So Jordan would be aligned with this king of the south um, and basically would escape out of the attack of Russia into this area in the very near future. And so that's the story. However other nations would not fare so well. Because we also have the nation of Egypt that is mentioned in Daniel chapter 11. He will stretch forth his hand also upon the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape, but he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over the precious things of Egypt. And other nations will be aligned with him. The Libyans and Ethiopians shall be at his steps, or shall march in stride with him." as the word in the, uh, or the phrasing in the Hebrew would, would give us an idea of. So that's the picture that Daniel gives us. He's going to go marching into the land of Egypt, but in this whole process, as we keep reading in Daniel, he's going to be upset in his campaign because there will be tidings out of the east and of the north that are going to trouble him. And we're told there that he's going to go forth with a great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. He shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. So he's going to come into the area of the Middle East, to Mount Zion, and that's where he's ultimately going to plant the tabernacles of his palace. But the end of the story is, of course, pretty clear. Uh, that is that he shall come to his end, and that none shall help him. So all those nations that are assembled with him are going to be obliterated by this power that's going to come into the Middle East. And of course, when you align that with Daniel chapter 2 and others, we recognize that that power is the power of the Lord Jesus Christ as the kingdom of God is established upon the earth. Now, tie that in with what we read elsewhere. 
And this is, of course, uh, the story that's given to us in Ezekiel chapter 38. There's this great confederacy there as well. In verse 2, we have Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And with him, there's Persia and Ethiopia and Libya and Gomer and all his bands down in verse 6 with Tagarma and many people. When you consider this in light of Daniel chapter 11, we find out that we're dealing with a very similar host. There's the map of the whole area that's involved, and we have all those, uh, the, the great Mediterranean Sea, the Black Sea up there in, in, in closer to Russia, and we have the nations that are outlined for us. We have Gog, who's of the land of Magog, which is that area of Central Europe that we know as, as we used to know as the Warsaw Pact area between the River Don and the River Danube, Poland and Eastern Germany and those different countries. Allied with it is Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, but they're not alone. There's others with them as well. There's Persia and Ethiopia and Libya with them. Persia being, of course, Iran, just like Daniel talked about, Ethiopia and Libya being aligned with them. And then other nations such as Gomer and all his bands and the Gomeric tribes, of course, went from the area of Gaul or Galatia um, and crossed, basically, uh, the area of Europe and ended up in the area of France and Germany. And, uh, of course, Tagarma being with them. And many other nations as well, as we read different prophecies, Assyria, Greece, and Rome, as we tie in Daniel chapter 2, and others, that would all be involved in this great confederation that's going to come against Israel. And specifically, what they're talking about is the mountains of Israel. As we read about them, uh, in Ezekiel chapter 37, or 38, sorry, verse 8, after many days they are going to visit the, the land of Israel, they're going to be visited, come into the land of Israel, the land that is brought back from the sword, that is gathered out of many people, specifically against the mountains of Israel, which have always been waste, but is brought forth out of the nations, and they shall dwell safely, all of them. What's very interesting is that one of the conservative MPs who is running for the leadership of the conservative party, just in this last couple of weeks, basically made the same statement as... Uh, I was going to say George Bush, but it's not George Bush, it's Donald Trump, that basically, if he gets in, Canada will move its um, capital, or not its capital, its, uh, its embassy, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and recognize uh, Jerusalem and the West Bank. So a very interesting situation that is developing there as well. And of course, they come to spoil the land, as we read of in Ezekiel 38, um, the one we looked at in verse 12, they come to take a spoil and a prey and to turn their land upon the desolate places that are inhabited and upon the people that are gathered out of the nations that dwell in this, this middle area of the land, which is the area of great contest today. That's the picture that the Bible gives us. And of course, the nations that protest us, as we've been talking about, is those ones of Sheba and Dedan, the merchants of Tarshish, and all the young lions thereof. So we have Arabia, and Ezekiel, or Daniel, sorry, added in the picture of, of Jordan, Edom, Moab, and Ammon being delivered. Um, with the merchants of Tarshish, which would be the British power, with its young lions, which includes America, Canada, United States, or uh, sorry, uh, New Zealand, and Australia, and you could add South Africa and, and uh, India and others to that as well. They protest at this point in time against this great invasion that has taken place. So as we look at that, we see basically a picture that has been developing of these northern nations that we looked at, uh, along with Libya and Ethiopia, who are contested by Sheba and Dedan and these merchants of Tarshish and the young lion nations that are all in this area of the south, of which Canada is a part. So as we see things roll forward from here, we can inspect, expect to see that Canada is going to take more of a role in, uh, in the Middle East area that is going to be friendly to Israel. Now that doesn't mean that's going to be immediate, because if you look at the last eight years of America's uh, relationship to Israel, we've certainly seen uh, a very unfriendly uh, president. Uh, that has changed in the person of Donald Trump. And that may be the case in, in Trudeau, and it may take a change of government to see that come about as well. Um, but God works over a period of time. This is the end game as it is given to us. 
And of course, it doesn't really matter what the present government's plan is, because as Thomas wrote years ago with regards to Britain, he didn't know what their plan was as entertaining the idea of assuming sovereignty of the Holy Land and promoting its colonization by the Jews. So I don't know if this is on their books right now. This is in their, their plan, their red book, or their, their, their platform. He says it doesn't really matter, because the finger of God has indicated a course that this nation is going to take. Uh, Britain specifically, the finger of God has indicated the course to be pursued by Britain, which cannot be evade, invade, or sorry, evaded. And of course, not just the lion of Tarshish, but also her young lions will be involved in forming this protectorate of the Jewish people. So looking back into history, as we see the hand of God has dictated who these nations are, but also basically in the future, they will be involved in the, the Middle East area, they will involve themselves in world politics. Um, they will involve themselves in military intervention in this area, which, as we talked about, is something for us to consider. Because those of us who live in this country, you know, quite often the, the Americans joke about Canada and its army and this and that and the other, and, and you know, we can fit our entire navy, um, including all the land personnel, on one aircraft, Canada or one aircraft carrier for, for Canada, which is interesting, but the point is this. If there is a war, and there will be, and Canada does involve itself in it will, and at what point in time we're taken away, um, we pray that it is before that, the only way that Canada can, can be significantly involved in this is through conscription, is through basically enacting the conscription laws that it did in times gone by, as we, we saw them up there, which means everybody... From the ages of 18 to 40, he was unmarried. And if you look at the United States Army, you don't have to be unmarried. Um, it's basically conscripted to go to war. Uh, male or female these days. So it certainly is something for us to can think about and where we stand on, on this, this type of situation. But as far as Canada goes, its future uh, role has been laid out by the scriptures. And the, at the time of the end, the Lord, as you read in Joel chapter 3 and verses 1 to 2, is going to gather all nations. When is this going to happen? He says, when I bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. And Jerusalem has been all over the news because, of course, it is the area where America is going to move its embassy to at some point in time. It's the, the capital of Israel, although the nations don't want to believe that. They all want to sort of put blinders on and say, well, it's not really there. And it's Judah, the area of the West Bank that um, is hotly contested and is the place that in the news in Israel, as we've heard recently, basically, is all about the annexation of this area of Judea and Samaria. He's going to bring all nations into the valley of Jehoshaphat, and he's going to plead with them there for his people, for his heritage, Israel. And we're told how that alignment is going to go down. But just... In sense of Canada, just come, if you would, to one other passage we'd just like to close with, and that is this, is that not all nations are obliterated at the Battle of Armageddon. Armageddon is, of course, as we know, a heap of sheaves in a valley for threshing. And threshing is a process of sorting out wheat and chaff. So there's going to be a, a, a change that takes place, a division, sorry, that takes place between nations. There will be chaff nations and there will be wheat nations. It's likened in Matthew 25. Um, he talks about gathering all nations. He's going to divide them from the sheep from the goats. And there are goat nations and there are sheep nations. And there will be ones that basically have been involved in the attack against Israel and others that have been involved more in its defense, perhaps not as much as they could be, but certainly in protesting against it. And when we look at the scriptures and we look at the words that are laid out for, for us in, in how God is going to, to defend this people and he's going to judge the nations that come down, he makes the point that when he makes this judgment, he's going to divide the sheep from the goats. And that the way in which they're going to be judged, if I can just put my finger on this little prophet, is based on how they have treated the people of Israel. And... Um, of course, I can't find it right now, but Obadiah runs away on me all the time. There he is. Um, Obadiah, and so if you think of Matthew chapter 25, he says, I'm going to gather all nations and I'm going to judge them like a shepherd does, the sheep dividing his goats. The basis on which they, they are judged in Matthew 25 is, as you have done to the least of these, my brethren. 
And of course, we know that the, the principles there are universal. They apply to how we treat one another. But it specifically is regarding how they have treated Israel. And if you look at um, Obadiah in verse 15, we're told the basis on which nations will be judged. It says, For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations. As thou hast done, it shall be done to thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. So how nations have treated the nation of Israel is how they're going to be judged. Should we be surprised at that? Absolutely not. In Genesis we read, I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. Right in Genesis chapter 12. And so it is, there will be nations that go into the kingdom age, Gentile nations that exist, and Gentile nations that don't. And in Psalm 72, we read of some of the nations that go in. We read there in verse 1, give, thy king, uh, give the king thy judgments, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. So this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be established on his throne in Jerusalem. And we, talk, we read there about kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. All kings will fall down before him, and all nations shall serve him. So we believe, of course, that Canada will bow its knee, will bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ in that day, as his prophecy tells us, because those nations of Tarshish will bring their presence and those of the isles and also Sheba and Seba, the area of Arabia, and they will fall down before him and they will serve him. And they will go on into the kingdom age and will be ruled over by the saints. And as they have done, it will be done to them. But the nations who do not such and who come against Jerusalem to battle will be destroyed as the chaff is burned up. So that is our, our look at Canada and Bible prophecy. And there's, there's plenty of other areas we could go with this. Um, suffice it to say that, that the hand of God has been involved with this nation throughout history in bringing it into his use and into his service as the most high rules in the kingdom of men and have used this nation and will continue to do so in the future. And we can thank our God that we have the privilege of living in a country like this that allows us the freedom to meet in the way that we do and to worship our God in the way that we do. And we should use that privilege to its utmost advantage to take the time to speak to those around us the word of truth while we have the opportunity. Thanks for joining us for this week's Bible in the News. Tune in next week where we will consider other subjects relating to Bible prophecy.